0: I wanted to share some more uh, glorious news with you this morning. You know, Sam, when he was first meeting with the GC leaders, he uh, talked to us about encouraging each person in our group to take an opportunity to share their faith story. And so we went ahead and did that. In the first week of our GC, I I asked people, uh, told them about it, and asked if anybody would like to be the first brave soul to share their story, and Steve Patterson raised his hand. And uh, so the following week, Steve came and shared his story, and a cool thing about his story was that he has a a legacy of faith through his grandfather, who he said was not only an avid Bible student, but he was a Hebrew scholar, and so he remembers as a little kid that uh, quite often uh, people would come for his teaching and his counsel and his advice, and and as he was sharing, Steve was sharing his story, he said, you know, I, I, I just always believed. And uh, so when he finished up sharing his story, I remember Ken Fennell, you know, kind of started sharing with um, knowing the difference between believing in our heads and trusting in our hearts. And some, sometimes it's the longest journey from our head to our hearts. And then I remember Stephanie Maurer towards the end just kind of said, Steve, do you ever remember time that, you know, you can say that you were saved? And so Steve went home and I think began to ask himself those questions. And Lisa and I were talking about it, my wife and I afterwards, and, and we kind of thought, I'm not sure if Steve, you know, really has trusted the Lord. And so I called them and set up an appointment last week and sat down with him and Vicki. And I uh, shared with him about the story that he shared and, um, I said, you know, Steve, do you you mind if I share you just a few scriptures that would maybe clear up the matter for you? And so I shared with him about a half dozen scriptures. And and I said, at the end, Steve, I said, um, do you believe Jesus is God? And he said, yes, I do. And he said, I said, do you believe that you're a sinner and need of forgiveness? And he said, yes. I said, do you believe Jesus died on the cross for you? And he said, yes. I said, well, then, is there any reason right now that you wouldn't want to make a personal decision to trust Christ as your Savior? He says, no, let's do that right now. So Steve and I prayed this past week, and he received Christ as a Savior. And he wants to be baptized. Yeah, awesome. Give, give the Lord a hand. Clap. And he wants to be baptized, and uh, as his Parkinson's continues to get worse, he said, Jim, I, I just, I'm not going to be able to get in and out of that tub. I said, well, brother, we're going to set up a chair up front here, and we're going to throw some plastic and maybe a tallow and we're going to pour water over your head. I say we believe in baptism by immersion, but you know what? God looks at the heart, and He's going to be smiling on you, so pleased that my child wants to make a public profession of faith. So on February twentieth, be here. Um, Steve's going to be baptized, and it's going to be a glorious occasion. Amen. Amen. The title of this morning's message is "The Spiritual Cure to What Ails You." We're going to pick up our journey in the Book of Acts uh, from where we left off last week. So if you got your Bibles or your Bible app. Turn to Acts 20, and we're going to take a look, starting in verse 16 and 17. It says there, Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus to avoid spending time in the province of Asia, for he was in a hurry to reach Jerusalem, if possible, by the day of Pentecost. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. So, Paul ended up his three-year ministry stay in Ephesus after he had followed the typical pattern that he used in, in every city that he went. Upon arriving, he'd preach to the Jews in the synagogue, and typically, after a time, he'd begin to experience some great opposition, and so that he'd move on and teach and preach the Gentiles to the Gentiles. He'd establish a new church in the city consisting of a combination of Jewish and Gentile believers. And he'd work to disciple and grow the congregation through teaching and raising up of several elders who would serve as pastors, shepherds, and overseers of the new church. And all those words that are used in the New Testament are synonymous, and they actually refer to different roles that the pastor has. Paul's goal was always to see a self-sufficient, well-led church so that he could move on to other cities and other regions to expand Christ's great commission call to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. He didn't want to be the focus or have anyone dependent on him. Paul's approach contradicts much of what we see in contemporary church methodology today, where often a strong authoritarian CEO type or charismatic personality centers the church around himself rather than around the Lord Jesus Christ. The pastor, leader, preacher believes and leads everyone in the church to believe that he's indispensable, that he's the reason for the church's success, and quite often when you Uh, hear that from somebody, you'll say, well, which church do you go to? And they'll name the pastor's name. I go to his church. I go to his church. This is one way you can know if the pastor at your church is a credible, healthy, godly leader. Is your loyalty expected to be directed toward the pastor or Jesus Christ? Does the pastor make it more about himself or about Jesus? Does the church appear to be more about the fame and exaltation of the pastor's name or the name of Jesus Christ? Paul would have none of this. He didn't want to be the focus. He didn't want people to praise and follow him nor make anyone feel that he was indispensable. Everywhere he went, he intentionally raised up men in that city who could effectively lead that church so that he could move on with the mission of the gospel to other regions. Every pastor should have, in a sense, a ministry of built-in obsolescence as he makes it his goal to disciple and raise up other men for the work. As we saw last week, Paul traveled through Macedonia and Greece. He intentionally sailed past Ephesus, not to avoid the Christians there, but because he felt a sense of urgency from the Holy Spirit to be in Jerusalem and reached Jerusalem at the time of the celebration of Pentecost. Paul had a significant offering that was collected from several of the churches to bring to the poverty-stricken believers there in Jerusalem. A ship arrives in Miletus and sets anchor at its port where the ship would have several days to unload its cargo. So Paul sends word to the Ephesian elders to come some 30 miles to meet him in Miletus so that he could see them one last time and encourage and instruct and commission them to the work of God's mission of the grace in Ephesus. Let's move on and and let's read verses 18 to 21. When they arrived, he said to them, "'You know how I lived the whole time I was with you, "'from the first day I had come into the province of Asia. "'I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, "'although I was severely tested by the plots of the Jews. "'You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything "'that would be helpful to you, "'but have taught you publicly and from house to house. "'I have declared to both Jews and Greeks "'that they must turn to God in repentance "'and have faith in our Lord Jesus.'" So Paul's life and ministry was always in public view. He never hid who he was or how he lived or what he believed. He had an unwavering commitment to always be an example of Christ so as to lead others to Jesus and not be in any way a hindrance to Jesus by the way he lived. As he begins to speak to the Ephesian elders, he reminds them of the way he lived. You see, because after Paul had left Ephesus already, there was a group of men that raised up and began to discredit Paul and talk against Paul and against his life and his teachings. And so he wanted to remind these elders who had been with him for three years, you remember how I lived, the way I lived. He said he always served the Lord in humility, that he boldly taught the Word of God publicly and privately from house to house, that his preaching was always centered on the gospel message of repentance and faith in Jesus Christ, The need for people to turn from their sin, from their idolatry, and turn to faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And that he stood strong and did not waver as the Jewish leaders constantly were plotting against him. I love what Paul says in verse 20. He says, I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And then he reiterates this in verse 27 where he says, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel or the whole will of God. And oh, how desperately we need this in the church today. For we see many pastors, teachers, preachers in the church shrink away from teaching the hard truths and fear that those outside of the church will take offense or will ridicule or will call names or will blacklist the church as being bigoted, narrow-minded, or out of touch. Paul declared in his letter later to the Ephesians church that we ought to speak the truth in love. And it was Paul's great love for people that compelled him not to skip over the hard truths, the tough truths, the truths that the culture might not like, for he knew that it was sin that kept people in bondage. It was lies that kept people in the dark and from Jesus. He refused to tickle people's ears with his messages, to even ever water them down, to make them more palatable or entertaining to the masses, for he knew that it was only the unadulterated word of God that set people free. And Jesus declared this in John chapter 8, where he says, If you truly are my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. It's the truth that sets people free. Why would we ever want to water that down? Watered down truth has no power to set people free. We are committed to this as your pastors. Pastors. And if you ever see us compromise with this, to try to be more entertaining than with deep truth, or to compromise to water it down because we're afraid that somebody might be offended, then call us out on it. Let's move on in Acts. Let's read verses 22 to 24. And now, compelled by the Spirit, I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. So while we saw back in the beginning the church, the birthplace of the church was actually established in Jerusalem, because of the persecution and execution of the Apostle James, the church leadership and the Christian population shifted to Antioch. Jerusalem quickly became the home of the rejection of the gospel and a danger to the Christian movement. To proclaim the name of Christ in Jerusalem was tantamount to signing your own death warrant. Paul tells the Ephesian elders that he has been repeatedly warned by the Holy Spirit that there were dangers ahead for him. And two of the commentaries that I took a look at, they said that, it was more than likely these were prophets that were sharing this insight that the Holy Spirit gave that, hey, Paul, there's danger ahead for you in Jerusalem. And we know, and we'll see later in Acts, as we continue on in our journey, that these things came to pass. If there ever was a reason to dilly-dally or to hymn-haw around or to let procrastination kicked in or to take the long, long scenic route to Jerusalem, it was now. Prison and hardships await, and yet Paul, he's in a hurry to get there. One reason, because he had this offering that he wanted to get to the poor there, but the other reason, he tells us, he says, because I consider my life worth nothing to me, if only I may finish the race, complete the task, testifying to the gospel of God's grace. He had a sense of urgency. With whatever time that remained for him, he knew His eternal fate was secure while so many others in Jerusalem were not. If you were in Paul's situation, how would you have handled that news? That danger awaited him. If you knew the Holy Spirit was leading you to share Christ with a a family member or a friend or a neighbor or a co-worker, but you also were certain that there probably was going to be ridicule or rejection or ostracization or you were looked at as a weirdo Christian, what would you do? Would you shy away? Let me give you a little analogy that I think works here that I hope would change your perspective. Let's say you discovered the cure for cancer. But there were opposing forces for reasons of selfishness and ego, people who wanted power, control and money and fame, and they wanted to stop you from bringing the cure to the people for those reasons. As someone who was personally diagnosed with cancer and who had surgery to remove the cancerous organ, I know the emotions personally of worry and fear, of reflecting on life and my own mortality, of trying to get my affairs in order and trying to understand if my time is short, how can I finish my race strong? Many of us have experienced losing people to cancer, people that we've loved, people who were dear to us, people who seem like they were in the prime of their life. We now have a number of cancer survivors, and, and we have Mike and Greg and Sue in our church right now who are in the midst of the fight. With no real bright prognosis of a cure, what would you do if you stumbled on the cure? Well, with great joy, you'd announce it to the world, wouldn't you? I found the cure for cancer. I I have what can cure you. I know the cure for what ails you. And you'd basically tell those opposing or threatening you to go take a hike, wouldn't you? This is a no-brainer. Of course you would do that. How much more do we have in our hands what we know to be true with absolute certainty in our minds and hearts, how Jesus is the cure to what spiritually ails every person on the planet. Just not those who have cancer, but every person, because every person has the same spiritual cancer, the same spiritual ailment. Raw, gonna die from something. And as a cancer survivor, oh, how I would jump for joy and rejoice if I knew the cure for cancer. And I could share it with people I love. But we have the cure for a more diabolical cancer. A spiritual cancer that robs people of freedom, joy, and peace in this life and separates a person from the love and goodness of God for all eternity. This is the destiny for every person you know who has not trusted Jesus as their Savior. And what most people don't know or understand is that their eternal destiny weighs in the balance and they need someone like you to go fill them in about it. Paul knew and was convinced of the spiritual cure he had and there was no way he was going to keep it to himself. Nor would he allow the threats of man to stop him from bringing this cure to the people of Jerusalem. This is how much he truly loved people. He says, the Lord Jesus has given me the task of testifying to the gospel of God's grace. Today, some Christian circles aim to modify the gospel, claiming that the Jews and Christians and Muslims, they worship the same God. It comes with a shot of tolerance and acceptance and the belief that all God really cares about is if the person trying to live out their faith is sincere. Well, let's take a look at what each of those faiths believe about Jesus. Let's see if each of them actually do worship the same God. Well, the Jews, they reject Jesus. As they wait for their Messiah to appear, they believe that earning God's acceptance and favor comes through their obedience to the Torah, which is the five, first five books of the Old Testament. Muslims reject Jesus as God while admiring him as a teacher and a prophet in line with Muhammad. Muhammad. Muslims have their own set of rules to follow to appease that are different than from the Jews that they arrive at through reading the Quran. Christians believe Jesus is the one true Messiah, the God who came in human flesh to save people from their sin. And Christians believe that the Bible, both the Old and the New Testament, is God's word. And it was Jesus who declared, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. He says, I am the one and only way. So tell me, how do those three religions, when you put them together and know what they generally believe, how in the world can you say they worship the same God? How can all three of these faiths be true at the same time? Is it possible that a person can be sincerely wrong? Every world religion that it has a God as its focus believes that you must earn God's graces by climbing up the mountain to Him. Through your good works, trying to be a good person, participating in that religion sacraments, helping the poor, being a good citizen, being faithful to the tenets of their religion. And at the end of your life, you're hopeful that you made the passing grade, but you never can be absolutely certain, even though you really think down deep that it's only the Hitlers and the Mansons and the Dahmers who in the end are going to fall short. Christianity alone teaches that God came down the mountain in human flesh on a rescue mission that first Christmas morning to save humanity from the consequences of their sin. Every other religion, you've got to climb up the mountain and try to get to God. Christianity, God came down the mountain in love on a rescue mission. Became human flesh. He died on a cross to pay the ransom for our sin and rose from the dead, proving that He was God and that He had victory over sin and death for every person who believes. And through placing your faith in Jesus, your sins are forgiven, you're granted eternal life. Jesus comes into your life through His Spirit to live live in you and help you live for Him. And while secure and confident in your place in heaven, not because of what you did to earn it, but because of what Jesus did to earn it for you. That's the difference between Christianity and all other religions. This is the gospel of grace that Paul speaks of and devoted his life to. So back to the cancer analogy. What would it say about a person who knew the cure for cancer and kept it hidden to themselves? What does it say about the Christian who holds this beautiful and wonderful message of the gospel To himself or to herself. Do you really understand your mission, church? Do you see when God saves us why He leaves us on this planet Earth for a while? It's because He's given us the cure and He wants us to share it with those who so desperately need it. And Sam hit on this last week as he was talking about community, the wonderful and beautiful community in the church. The highest purpose for our existence as Emmanuel Fellowship Church is not the enjoyment and blessing of our Sunday gatherings or our friendships or our community life in our GCs and our enjoyment of being together. That's not our highest purpose. The reason we exist as a church and the reason we have such wonderful community life together is that we might be strengthened and encouraged and supported and equipped for the true purpose of the church to share the good news of Jesus Christ with others. I know this may be convicting you a bit. It's convicting me. But it's not intended to produce guilt. It's intended to inspire you by reminding you that no one has a message to share with another human being that's more important and precious and special and life-transforming and of eternal significance than the message that you and I have believed with all of our hearts. The good news of Jesus Christ and what He promises to every person who places their faith in Him. You have the spiritual cure right here in your hands and in your hearts. I want you to consider it a great honor and privilege for God to have left you here on earth for this very purpose, to share the cure with others. In the power of the Holy Spirit and the powerful truth of God's Word, you can do it. You can do it. Hear me. You can do it. One person plants a seed. Another person comes along and waters those seeds, but only God can produce the growth. So stop trying to save people or worrying about whether or not you'll come up with the right words or if someone's going to reject you. And Just start scattering some seeds or providing some water on seeds, already planted, and trust God for the rest. Put your excuses and fears aside and just start tossing out some seeds. And and be as creative as you can about it. I mean, there's so many avenues now that we have that don't necessarily have to encounter a face-to-face. we got so much social media that we can begin to move this word out to many, many people that we know and love. God gave me the opportunity to lead Steve to Christ last week. God provided the opportunity for Lisa and I to host a neighborhood Bible study when two neighbors came to us and asked if we would do that. God laid on my heart that on my 40th spiritual birthday on February 12th to make a video sharing my faith journey and my faith story with all my Facebook family and friends. You can do stuff like that. You can be as creative as you want to try to get the word out. The cool thing is I realized is I haven't really reflected on my spiritual birthday, but I realized that my spiritual birthday is actually the physical birthday of one of my daughter-in-laws. February 12th. So that's kind of cool. The mission involves God placing people in your path and involves you taking initiative to create opportunities. If you're waiting for God to drop someone from the sky in front of you who says, what must I do to be saved? You're going to be waiting the rest of your life and never taking an opportunity. Let's move on in verses 25-27. to 27. Now I know that none of you among... Whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. So Paul, knowing that he will never see the Ephesian elders again, wants to charge them to persevere in the ministry with the same boldness that he's shown. And he makes an astonishing declaration. He says, "I am innocent of the blood of all men." What's he talking about? He's given a reference to Ezekiel 33 that describes a watchman's responsibilities. A watchman was to survey the land and communicate what he saw to the people. If he saw an enemy coming, he was to blow the trumpet and warn the people. But if the people heard the warning and ignored it, it was said that the blood was on their heads. The watchman had performed his duty and was now considered innocent if the citizens were to die. But the watchman who does not blow the trumpet of warning, those people who die, as a result, the blood is on the watchman's head. And that's pretty heavy stuff. Paul's telling the elders and us that we have a responsibility to blow the trumpet, to share the gospel with those we meet, those who are in our lives. And he tells the elders he never hesitated, he never shrank back from sharing the gospel with the people he encountered in everyday life. That way he could say with confidence that, their blood is not on my head. I wish I could say the same. In 1982, when I trusted Christ as my Savior in Clemson University, I got involved in meeting with a couple of navigators, guys Chris and Mark, who began to take me through the scriptures and began to disciple me. And about five weeks in, they said, okay, now you're going to go uh, witness out in the quadrangle where all the people gather during the day. <laughs> what? I don't think so. Oh, yeah, 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 come on, this is your next step. They scheduled me a date to go out there, and I didn't show up. While the day I was saved, a great inner peace entered my life, and the void that I had in my life was filled... For years, I was still anxious and insecure and a guy with low self-esteem and plenty of issues to work through because you see, the moment you trust Christ, all that stuff just doesn't strip away. He works with us over time to set us free from those kind of things. But after that, after I chickened out in my shame, I made a decision that whatever I felt the Lord was leading me to do, I had to say yes no matter how fearful I was to do it. You see, courage is not the absence of fear. Courage is stepping out with your fear and trusting God to take care of you. Every step of my Christian journey for almost 40 years has been an exercise of courage, of stepping out of my comfort zone, of doing something I was afraid to do because I knew God wanted me to do it. It started out by a pastor at North County Community Church taking me under his wings and seeing something in me and said, Okay, now I want you to start leading small groups. Listen, I was the guy who in high school and college, I tried to find that seat in the back row. And not only did I sit in the back row, but I slinked down so that maybe the professor or the teacher couldn't see me so I wouldn't get called on. That's the kind of guy I was. So I started leading small groups. Then I was asked to preach. In August 1989 was the first time I ever gave a message. And I didn't sleep one second the night before. And the next ten times I preached, I maybe slept for a couple hours at best. And now, 500 sermons later, here I am. Mission trips. Boy, that's not for me. September 1993, I decided to go because I believe God wanted me to. And I absolutely felt like a fish out of water. And you know, 13 people prayed with me and my translator to accept Christ, and she didn't know a word of English, and I didn't know a word of Spanish. But then I was flying home, and I said, okay, I experienced that. That's not for me. I'll help send others. And here I stand 10 trips later, and now I have a role to lead out in this way for our church in the future. God has called each of us to a life of courage. Remember, courage is not the absence of fear. You're not waiting until you get over your fear, but it's a willingness to step out with your fear and trust God to take care of you. If it means anxiety and feeling like a fish out of water and sleepless nights, do it! And you'll be amazed at what God does in and through you. Let's read on in verses 28-32. which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. So Paul tells these pastors to make sure that they first watch over themselves. Don't just talk the talk, but walk the walk. You can only truly give another person what has become a part of you. Just don't preach and teach about it. Live it. Let it transform your life. Otherwise, you're just a hypocrite who in the end will lead people away from Jesus. If you want them to be people of the Word and prayer, be a pastor devoted to the Word and prayer. If you want them to commit to share their lives in community, then be someone who faithfully pursues community. If you want them to learn how to forgive, then be a pastor who forgives those who hurt you. If you want them to dedicate themselves to the mission of the Gospel, then they need to hear about and see that you are faithfully sharing the Gospel in and through your life. Pastor God has made you an overseer and a shepherd. Paul evokes Jesus' imagery who called himself the good shepherd and called the disciples his sheep. Then Paul heightens the seriousness of this charge as he reminds them that the sheep cost Jesus his very life. And he's placed his blood-bought sheep into your hands, into your care. This is how much... He loves them. This is how precious they are to Him. Treat them as precious. Love them as He has loved them. Then Paul warns them, savage wolves will come in among you. These are external threats to the church. The word savage indicates a malevolent, murderous intent. They will be after the church to destroy it. And then he says there's a second threat also, and he warns them about those from within the church. That there will be men actually in your church that will rise up and distort the truth with the intention of drawing people away from the one true gospel. Pastor, elder, overseer, shepherd, always be on your guard. Be on the lookout. Always discerning and looking out for false teaching. Then Paul reminds these pastors that it's only by God's grace that you can faithfully do this work. All people who minister for Christ must recognize the inability of human strength to produce supernatural results. Verse 33 through 35, he says, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Once again, Paul, he's finishing up his address with these elders by once again defending his ministry. He never preached the gospel for selfish gain or ambition or to get rich. He was controlled by one reality, the glory of God. This is not to say that ministers of the gospel should not be paid. In many places through the New Testament, Paul spills a lot of ink defending the right for pastors to receive financial support from the church. What he's actually doing here is contrasting himself with some of the false teachers operating through Macedonia and Asia who preached for selfish gain. And then Paul reminds us all that we don't earn a living, whether you're a pastor or not. You don't earn a living to only take care of yourselves and your family, but that God allows us to earn to help take care of the poor and needy. Ending with these words, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Let's close the message this morning by reading the last three verses. When he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was the statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. What a tender, intimate moment this is. I really want you to capture this. These men knelt down together and they prayed for one another. They wept and embraced and kissed. These elders returning to Ephesus for the work of the gospel grieved that they would never see their friend and brother and mentor Paul again. And I'm sure were greatly concerned about Paul's well-being in Jerusalem. But know as Christians, we don't grieve as non-Christians do. For even though they mourn the loss of a great friend and mentor, they knew that whatever waited for Paul in Jerusalem and beyond, that they would meet once again in eternity. Then they accompanied him to the ship and saw him off, probably waving and lingering until the ship moved out of sight. What a beautiful, beautiful picture of the love that brothers have for one another as they make their friendship based on the mission of the gospel, the common bond they have in Christ, One salvation, one baptism, one spirit, one Savior and Lord, one spiritual family, one mission, one inheritance, one eternal home. This is the common bond that we have in Christ. This is what leads us to the kind of depth of friendship and love for one another that's demonstrated here by these men. This bond of friendship and depth of love, it doesn't come through a shared love of sports or food or video games. It doesn't come through a shared love of movies or TV or Facebook. It doesn't come through a shared socioeconomic status. It doesn't come through partying together or vacationing together. It comes through shared life experience of living for something so much bigger than life lived for self. It comes as we choose to live life together for the sake of the gospel. These are the wonderful treasures of deep, life-transforming friendship the Gospel brings to every person who has placed their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Chris, if you want to come on up. We're going to have a time of reflection. And as we say every week, and now is the time for you to be alone with God. And that's always, I'll tell you, the beautiful thing that we come to church on Sunday. Whether there's 50 people here or 100 people here or more, he always wants to meet you personally right where you're at. What has he been speaking to you about this morning? This is your chance to reflect on where you stand in your relationship with Jesus Christ. Maybe you know about him in your head, but you've never trusted him in your heart. Maybe it's about where you stand, Christian, in relationship to the gospel mission Christ has given you. Have you shrank back? And maybe now you want to stop giving in to fear. Maybe God's laid a person's name on your heart. And he wants you to go to them this week to tell them about Jesus. I believe every one of you are here for a very specific reason. There is something God has wanted to say to you. Don't blow it off. Never forget that the gospel is to be your life's motivation. This is your end goal. And it's not too late to hear these words from Jesus found in Matthew 25, 21. And I paraphrase. As you stand before him after your final day here on this earth, you want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. You've been faithful Come and share in your Savior's happiness. Go ahead and take that time alone with the Lord right now. We'll have a song and then we'll finish up with communion.